0: Afghanistan is on the news, no doubt, because we feared the worst that the Taliban will reclaim Afghanistan after we leave. Did you know that America did not even have an embassy in Afghanistan until 1948? And that when the Cold War started, America became more interested in Afghanistan. In fact, President Eisenhower visited Afghanistan in 1959 and got a tour of Kabul. And America's involvement in Afghanistan increased to such a level during the 1950s and 60s that the Soviets feared America will turn Afghanistan into a satellite state. Hey there News Peelers, today is July 16, 2021 and this is Adele with the Peel.News. Once a week we select a news item and peel the history behind it to gain perspective from the past. (laughs) Oh boy, sometimes history gives us a good laugh, sometimes it offends, and sometimes it just It just shocks. Like, did that really happen? I'm telling you, you can't make up some of this stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both and let's get into it. Although America's military role in Afghanistan is not scheduled to end until August 31st, the longest serving commander of American forces there, Army General Scott Miller, relinquished his post in a thinly attended ceremony in Kabul this week. Now that he's gone, other senior U.S. military officers will continue to manage America's military operations in Afghanistan from the U.S. Embassy in Kabul and from an air base in Qatar, a country roughly about a 1,000 miles away. And this begs the question, in what sort of Afghan operations will America be involved? Earlier this week, American drones hit Taliban targets to support the Afghan army in Kandahar province. So, this is probably a good indication of America's future military role in Afghanistan, drone strikes and air support. But will this be enough? So far, the Taliban have gained control of about 180 districts out of 400 districts in Afghanistan, and they have captured two major border checkpoints, which is important because it fills their coffers with income from customs duties. In a news conference last week, President Biden defended his decision to leave Afghanistan, stressing that we did not go to Afghanistan to nation build. And then, President Biden, who was a history major in college, got into history, saying, No nation has ever unified Afghanistan. No nation. Empires have gone there and not done it. Hmm. To better understand the history of Afghanistan, we spoke with Mr. Shah Mahmoud Hanifi, a professor of Central and South Asia and Middle Eastern Studies in James Madison University. Professor Hanifi has many publications regarding the history of Afghanistan since the 16th century, including his book, Connecting Histories in Afghanistan. The links to Professor Hanifi's academic homepage, along with his many publications, are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Hanifi and I peel the history behind this news. Professor Hanifi, it is such a pleasure to have you on our show today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. As we withdraw our remaining troops from Afghanistan, it occurred to me, admittedly somewhat shamefully, that I know very little about Afghanistan. I say shamefully because because us Americans tend to know more about our football teams and vacation destinations (laughs) <laughs> then we know about a country to which we have sent our men and women for 20 years now to fight a war. So if you don't mind, I'd like to start with some basics here. Who are Afghans?
1: Well, uh, Adele, thank you so much for that very difficult question. It's a complex uh, historical question. Complex I've noticed question. that. Yeah, it's quite... Um, contentious in fact and
0: contentious
1: and many, it, contentious in the sense that there is a um, kind of gradient of parts within this afghan whole kind of america has a lot of different components and to say what is an american um it brings up questions of race and history in ways that the category afghan also what an
0: interesting p- analogy okay
1: relates to so the most important thing about whatever afghan may be is that it relates to other terms particularly the term pashtun Uh particularly the term pathan and of course the space of afghanistan kind of conditions our understanding and um so who is an afghan is a is a complex question the term is a persian term Mm -hmm. and in many ways we can chart the history of the word uh, through the Persian language to about 1000 AD, um, but of course, it's not as if any population just appears on the map. There's kind of a previous yeah. before what an Afghan kind of became, there are constitutive elements. So it's a very complex uh, question that revolves around Persian, and its relationship to other languages, particularly Pashto in the space broadly between Kabul, Kandahar, Herat, Mazar, but also the region just on the other side of uh, the Indus River in North India, in Central Asia, and in Iran, we find Afghans today.
0: So Pashto is not, you said other languages and you identified Pashto. So Pashto is not a Persian language. It's not an Iranian-based language. Am I correct on that? Well,
1: no. no. In the history of uh, sort of the study of languages, the field Mm -hmm. of philology, there are language um, families and origins. And Pashto is an Eastern Iranian language. Farsi and Dari are, are dialects of an Iranian language family uh, representative. This is the kind of Indo-Iranian language family. So Pashto is a distinct language from Persian that like, this is perhaps the most important point. There's a lot of Persian vocabulary that is found in Pashto just like there's a lot of Arabic vocabulary found in Persian. And there's a deep history of these terms um, relating, uh, these languages interacting with one another.
0: If an Afghan in modern Afghanistan now who mm-hmm. speaks uh, Persian, Farsi, as you identified, with a Pashtu Afghan, will they be a- able to understand each other's language? not no not inherently depending on the
1: context if you're ordering food there may be shared yeah exactly no these are not languages that are mutually intelligible i see differently structured persian does not sort of have a gendered view of the world pashto does interesting uh, so there's you know considerable grammatical and vocabulary differences as well as a number of very um Share a kind of shared Islamic vocabulary in many ways.
0: Is there any ethnic differences between Farsi slash Persian speaking Afghans versus Pashto speaking Afghans?
1: Well, again, a very complex. The 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 term ethnicity is. also, very complex. It has. I'm a, doing,
0: I'm, I'm heading bullseye every time with these complex questions. Sure.
1: And I appreciate the opportunity because, I mean, part of the um, information management of, of Afghanistan is to make it understandable. Yeah. For, uh, of course. So, no, there um, are ways to view ethnicity culturally, that is through language. And then that's, if we took that view, Persian speakers would be of a different group. Than Pashto speakers, but that is not the way to view Afghanistan because of bilingualism. That I you see. Can, in Afghanistan, it would be the case that the preponderance of Pashto speakers also speak Persian, Dari. However, the inverse is not the case. The preponderance of Persian speakers do not speak. Pashto. So the language is... Why is
0: that? Why do Persians not speak uh, Pashto? Um, And you identified another language, Dari. Is it because Persian is the dominant or government language? I'm speculating here. I don't know, sir. I'm just asking.
1: Not at all. There are, contempt in the modern contemporary uh, world of Persian language speakers, there are more identified three dialects, Farsi, spoken in Iran, Mm -hmm. Dari, spoken in Afghanistan, and Tajiki, spoken in Tajikistan. Dari and Tajiki sound more similar to one another than those do in relation to Farsi.
0: Which is spoken in Iran. Which is spoken in Iran. The difference with
1: Tajiki is that it's written with the Cyrillic Russian script. The Russian and, and Tajikistan
0: used to be a colony of or a part of the Soviet uh, right. uh, um, Union. Um, so, some of this complexity, Professor Hanifi, uh, does it come from you? Just you just use the use the phrase "space of Afghanistan." Does some of this complexity come from Afghanistan's location? You know, when they talk about Afghanistan, they talk about you know landlocked country, and that's true. But when you look at Afghanistan on the map with a historical sort of perspective it's straddling historically and now these this divide or maybe it's a melding place of these great civilizations and re- religions am I am I making too much out of this or is this really a confluence of all these different worlds
1: uh, I, I, I don't I don't know if you're making enough out of it to- <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm underestimating here okay
1: yeah, well no it's Location and geography is of premier importance. There's nothing more important than location, so to speak. And Afghanistan, as you so helpfully know, has been exposed. Let's just keep it simple and say to Iranian culture and Indian culture, since there has been, um, you know, kind of human habitation on the planet. Okay. Afghanistan has been around um, as a, as a, geographic space since recorded history. And even in prehistory, obviously, we can go there. But the point to emphasize is that to understand Afghanistan's spatial interactions with surrounding regions, we really need to forget the map and the, forget the map okay. or the, the boundaries. I mean, the, the current boundaries okay. that we see Afghanistan through are not helpful in understanding the historic interactions that space has with surrounding spaces. Are
0: the interactions with surrounding spaces going back to the time of the Persian Empire and the Tang Dynasty, is it the interaction between Zoroastrianism and Buddhism and uh, animism, paganism, and then later Islam, and all these different Persian, Chinese, and Indian—do uh, uh, they really get to interact with the Himalayas being uh, sort of a divide between all these uh, civilizations?
1: Yes, Adel, certainly. And you know, part of that spatial interaction involves languages and it involves religions, as you say. But I think your reference to the Hindu Kush is really important because. Um, Mountains don't historically don't form barriers as much as corridors for humans to move through. So the Hindu Kush has been perhaps the most well-documented mm-hmm. set of mountain passes in in history. Okay, and oh, so wow,
0: I, that's really interesting. I would not have thought of that. I would have thought that so, those high mountains would be impediments. Wonderful.
1: Well, not at all. In the sense um, that we can track the the great kind of conquerors and explorers of the world from Alexander the Great through the Mongols and moguls to Americans and through that high bar pass, for example. But what's really important uh, for the audience to understand is that that space that we call Afghanistan, that we see on the map with its boundaries might be better thought of um, as a region where the Hindu Kush is the prominent geographic f- feature. Uh-huh. The Indus River and the Oxus River, in my view, mark Oxus better, never
0: ever been in the north. Indus to the south. Am I saying that correctly?
1: Yes, south kind of east. And Southeast. And okay. The north of the borders as we see them today, mm-hmm. which are um, entirely human manufactured borders. They they don't. Uh, although the border in the north does follow the uh, uh, Oxus River for a portion of its. It's not really. Um, uh, uh symmetrical the geographic and political boundaries are what need to be distinguished in our minds here historically the hindu push has attracted um let's just call them uh whatever pass pass people who pass by can be called passengers yeah. so the history of passengers <laughs> yeah. through the hindu kush uh is a good way to view this
0: professor Hanifi, when you say manufactured borders i just want to make sure that i that i uh, comprehend this correctly the borders of afghanistan were not drawn quote unquote manufactured as as you, as you use that term the way let's say the border of jordan and iraq were sort of decided on by by the french and the uh, russian empires is, is that correct are they more natural borders no
1: they're much more unnatural they're quite like the boundaries of the middle oh, east that wow. are imperial creations the boundaries of afghanistan uh, involve a, a multi-state bordering process that involves Ottomans, Iranians, Russians and the British primarily. But don't forget there's a border with China that Afghanistan has. Yeah, a little well- tiny border. And yeah. that, that's a man that's purposeful in the sense uh, these borders took shape in, between the late 1860s and 1893. What
0: 1890, do you mean it's purposeful when you talk about China border?
1: When so that the um, uh, having the British and Russian empires not meet and uh, yeah, keeping, uh, you're you're referring to
0: the great game between Russia and well, that's
1: the, um, the great game is viewed as a, um, so a set of geostrategic concerns between the British and the Russians, yeah. borders were central there, but not just the borders of Afghanistan. The borders of Iran are also kind of, of a contentious issue in the
0: Great Game the divide. Um, now, as we're talking about borders and the Great Game, we're really getting into discussion of a country. You you aptly pointed out to me and uh, our listeners that Afghanistan should be thought of as a region that uh, doesn't really fit well within its modern borders. When did Afghanistan become a country? And that itself, I have to admit is a lot of the question. Sometimes some people think of themselves as a country, but at some point it's, I guess, recognized international as a country. When did that happen?
1: Sure. And again, um, I think words and categories are really important yeah. here. So um, maybe we can think of um, a country as something that uh, kind of predates a state, a nation state. So there's empires before nation states, and Afghanistan was um, the the most common narrative involves an imperial formation, the Afghan Empire. Afghan
0: uh, Empire. Oh wow! Okay. Uh,
1: the, the founder of, of this, and this is also quite a complex and uh, uh, period that involves other empires. Uh, what was the, the
0: name of that empire?
1: Well, it would be called the Durani Afghan Empire, the Durrani uh, sort okay. of group of Afghans. And this is really complex because upon becoming a polity, an empire, the leader changed his name from Abdali to Durrani, which complexifies what this is all about. um, When,
0: when was the empire founded? 1747.
1: And what's important about that date um, are two things.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It is at the end of the Safavid empire in Iraq. Okay. Correct. And, The Mughal Empire in India was fragmenting and the British were, you know, uh, present and soon to become sort of hegemonic or not soon in the 18th century. But by the 19th century, the British are firmly in control of India. Yeah. Whereas Iran remains sort of semi-autonomous in a way that still involves imperial interests, Russian and British. And the Afghan empire then devolves um, um, into a smaller set of principalities when the founder of the empire died. And the important thing here, Adil, for your listeners, is that um, the founder of the empire had a really mobile history. He was born in Multan, Pakistan sort of matured in Herat and the eastern uh, sort of Iranian post-Safavid lands Mm -hmm. and becomes the the, the king in Kandahar Afghanistan. So the empire originates in a lot of mobility where Kandahar becomes all
0: geographically distinct places with distinct uh, imports and cultures even.
1: Sure, and Ahmad Shah history exposed him to those you know influences we could call them Indian if we sort of simplify what Multan represents in a South Asian uh, geography and cultural space yeah it's being a kind of core of the Persianate cultural space and Ahmad Shah seems to have been familiar with both and he his empire um, became I guess, uh, stationary in a sense, with the capital city in Kandahar, but he continued to migrate and invade India.
0: Uh, interesting. So, and the Kandahar that we hear often in the news, uh, particularly now, actually used to be an imperial capital at one point.
1: Oh, yeah, uh, of for, for multiple empires. And Alexander... So,
0: interesting. so interesting. The key
1: here, Adil, is that upon Ahmad Shah's death,
0: uh-huh. his
1: son who inherited the, you know, uh, leadership of this emergent polity moves the capital to Kabul right away. The Is polity, there a
0: strategic reasons for that?
1: Well, he was um, very interested in the kizil community in Kabul and ended up um, becoming very uh, intimate with that
0: Community. Is Qizilbash uh, uh, a warring Turkic community? Am I saying I, that correctly?
1: I, I think we can say that the history of the Qizilbash involves a military uh, Turkic kind of tribal military force in Safavid, Iran, that also had bureaucratic and administrative skills and literacy. The Qizilbash were both warriors and the kind of men of the pen and men of the sword
0: oh wow that's fascinating
1: Kizilbosh ladies they say that timur shah had 300 Kizilbash women in his harem and this that's has a lot a, of
0: alimony to pay sir that's a
1: tremendous <laughs> cultural influence on the yeah. state yeah and i i um, take joke very well that's very good
0: uh, <laughs> i i have a i have a i have a question that always gnaws away at me for for, this is you know going back to the movie alexander the Great and there's this term that's often used afghanistan is the graveyard of empires Right. right briefly if you would please could you just shed some light on this is it let me just let me just go on a limb here and suggest my uneducated uninformed reasons in comparison to you, is it because of the distribution of power, different tribal leaders with different interests? Am I even close to coming up with a reason for this?
1: Well, um, I think the phrase graveyard of empires is a very popular, prominent one applied yeah. to Afghanistan. Yes. It becomes a uh, what would it be? Uh, an inherit it is an inheritance of the great game
0: between kind Russia of, and and and, and you, British empires, yeah.
1: Because the sort of I guess gist of the graveyard of empires is that the British sent their armies there and they were so called defeated, and that's quite. Uh, uh, there's a lot of com- <laughs> specificity there, um, but the Soviets and now the Americans, their imperial projections in Afghanistan fail. And the Graveyard of Empires then is about imperial kind of overextensions in Afghanistan that are not successful and thus the imperial project fails. Now, the problem here is that it's an Im- fully from the imperial perspective. And if we look at what this means... Oh, wow. For- <laughs> okay what it means that is if an empire is a living thing it goes to afghanistan to die then afghanistan is full of what dead people afghanistan is a blank space a dead space with no history this is a, a an imperial and colonial way of viewing other cultures and other spaces so the question i have for the graveyard of empires metaphor is who's living there that killed them and what does that you know, what is living in a graveyard uh, mean for those who live there? I'm interested I love in what, that. I'm much more interested in what the local um sort of resonances of these frameworks of understanding. Wait a second,
0: Professor hanifi actually, now that you brought it up, that must that phrase may even be offensive to Afghans.
1: I, I take offense to it.
0: Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for shedding light on that. I'm so glad I asked that question. Why don't we take a short break and talk about Afghanistan in the 20th and 21st centuries? Professor Hanifi, as I was preparing for this conversation with you, I realized something about Afghanistan that, frankly, totally surprised me. Please, please tell me if I'm wrong on this or not. Afghanistan was never a colony, the way, say, India, Egypt, or or, or Algeria were colonies, right?
1: Uh, your uh, your questions are so rich. Um, and, uh, <laughs> They're, they're, they're quite simple, but they um, require some unpacking. And so colonialism is um, what was invoked here. Was never Did you say never a colony the way India was, kind of?
0: Yeah, like, you know, in, in, sure. uh, Algeria was a French colony through sure. and through. And, sure. and, and Go ahead, please. Let's realize
1: that colonies take different forms. What the British did in India was different than what the French did in Algeria economically and culturally, in terms of technology transfer. Great,
0: great point, yeah.
1: So also there are, let's call them, not just varieties of effective colonialism, but degrees of you know successful colonialism. Colonialism is an uneven form of power. It involves military, cultural, technological, commercial elements. And Afghanistan, although it was never formally colonized, as you say, it was still very much affected by colonial activities and influences. And the quick story about Afghanistan's not being colonized involved two British wars in the 19th century that failed to bring Afghanistan into the Purview of British India. British tried to colonize formally, militarily Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. That is twice in the First Anglo Afghan War of 1839 to 42 and the Second Anglo Afghan War of 1878 to 1880. Now, the simple reading is that those two wars failed and therefore Afghanistan was never colonized. But that's a misreading, because, How British, so? because British influences continued uh, very heavily and consistently, despite not fully successfully incorporating Afghanistan into British India. Let me explain this by saying that we think of British India being fully colonized by the British. That's true, yeah but there were pockets that were not fully colonized. They're called princely states. And the princely states of British India were regions within British India that had autonomy in the sense of a local ruler taxing and doing sort of local things independent of British interest. Now, those princely states were tied economically and kind of militarily to the British Empire, but technically they were their own autonomous unit.
0: So these are these are sort of uh, the residual uh, heirs to the Mughal Empire, residual princes, uh, or, or is there more than that in India?
1: There's a lot more than that, and there was I think 574 of these things from oh little states to Kashmir. Kashmir was a princely state,
0: so and, I've so India was never fully colonized in the sense that we think of. Okay,
1: yeah, and Afghanistan sort of in the typology of colonialism looks like a princely state. That is an area that is um, oh in a sense, operating on its own terms. But in practice, those terms are dictated by kind of colonial powers. And in Afghanistan's case, there are more than just the British. involved. Uh,
0: Professor Hanifi, I want to ask a question, but I'm very cautious with the words. Um, Gosh, what sort of words do I use here? Do you think that by not being a full colony, as in British did not settle, in in afghanistan or ottomans or persians or russians did not set well persians that's a different story did not settle for decades and decades in afghanistan do you think that because of that afghanistan missed out on some of the benefits i'm using that word very gingerly there's never a benefit to be in a colony of another nation that's not what i mean what i mean by is Uh, administrative benefits that come in modernization railroads and airports do you think afghanistan missed out on that there are other countries that this question applies to perhaps as well for example iran next door that was not settled in a way by the british or the the russians that let's say egypt was so does my question make sense professor hanifi
1: and again it's a really good one and it's a it's it's a it's the kind of question that deserves its own course not just a five minute answer
0: different and another podcast another podcast episode
1: (laughs) um i I would say um what uh, let's just historically understand that there was a time when the world was composed of empires let's just call that the You know, 19th and early 20th century. And then there was a world full of nation states. And let's just call that the kind of. post World War War II. However, we want to do this. But what is going on here for our Afghanistan purposes is that empires do things that nation states inherit. And if we're talking about things like railroads and bureaucracy and standardized money and standing armed forces, and then that's that's
0: what I was referring to. Yeah.
1: So we've got to look then at what those institutions, those Imperial institutions, whether they're Mm -hmm. bureaucratic or commercial do for the space in question. And so Afghanistan has, I've said, as a historian, Now, I'm interested in, let's just say, I'm interested in forests. And I can go to archives in India and get information about Hindu Kush forests, but the archival data, the institutional understanding uh, in terms of record keeping for forests in Afghanistan looks very different. And so I could say, kind of, sort of seriously, that I wish I had access to Afghanistan's forest records which I don't have access to, easily, but I can get them very easily in British India. So what this means is really the state looks very different, less developed, less connected um, to society. In a sense, colonialism generated a lot of friction between the Afghan state and its personnel and Afghan society at large, where let's just say in India, um, that gap is sort of uh, differently expressed, and um, you know there there's at least more communication between, let's just say, civil society and the state in India than than in uh, Afghanistan. I
0: understand? So there there are elements that come with full throttle colonialism. Colonialism that um, that did not happen in the case of Afghanistan or other countries that were not fully engulfed, uh, folded within another empire's uh, colonies. If I could just add, though, that at the
1: same time, Afghan rulers, rulers on the periphery of colonialism in places like Ethiopia and Thailand, and the princes of the princely states in India were anxious and craved colonial kind of um, technologies, accoutrements, you know, kind of clothes and the paintings and we start to see a really interesting interaction between these spaces of indigenous culture and um kind of autonomous people yeah and, and the empires and colonies that structure their surroundings. You know.
0: Uh Professor Nefi you you started um making references to formation of nation states. Uh I read something fascinating uh that In the 1920s a hundred years ago an afghan king abolished burqas and that his wife uh whose name escapes me now at the moment i apologize uh, actually was a prominent queen a woman in afghan politics so I bring this up because we all see burqas, Afghan women with burqas, and we all fear what will happen if, and when uh, the Taliban take full control of Afghanistan. So the question I have is what happened? Burqas were actually abolished in Afghanistan. And here we are a hundred years later, they're back with respect to that. Sure.
1: Well, um, Again, a really excellent point of departure that we need to understand um, uh, with some some context in mind here, and that you are addressing King Amanullah and his wife Soraya, who are Soraya, okay, the the sort of um, personifications of modernity in Afghanistan, and Amanullah ruled from one thousand, nine hundred and nineteen to 1929. The important part about this period um, is that it inaugurates what is understood as Afghanistan's independence. And that is independence from British India. And the irony here is that if you are becoming independent from British India, you are inherently recognizing the British influence on your pre.
0: (laughs) 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 You're not, you're not an outright colony, but you're somewhat. You're you're still going to
1: get independence, right? Interesting. Well, yeah. And the uh, more interesting fact here is the uh, sort of personnel involved in and around Amanullah and his state. And here we have his father-in-law, Mahmoud Tarzi, who, comes back to Afghanistan in the early 1900s, as so many exiles did. The point here is that-
0: Where did they live? Europe? The Ottoman Empire? Where? He was
1: in the Ottoman Empire. I see. There were many in Russia and many in India that were invited back. The story here is that the ruler, after the Second anglo-afghan war his name is abdul rahman okay so he ruled from 1880 to 1901 it's under his rule that the borders of afghanistan were established the kind of um state that we know it as today takes shape and this involves an incredible amount of violence by the state upon the afghan people most notoriously, the conquest of the Hazarajat in central Afghanistan, where the Buddhas are, and that of Kafiristan, the home of the Kafirs, that becomes forcibly Islamized, and Nuristan is the result there. So al- Wait, Ahmad, uh,
0: Kafir, <laughs> as I read it, means someone who's a pagan who doesn't believe in God. Am I saying that correctly?
1: Well, yes, and for Afghanistan, it has a deep pre-Islamic set of religious practices, particularly Buddhist, and the kafirs were non-Muslims practicing a very, you know, still little understood, uh, complex uh, set of religious practices, and it's a wide geography. Wow, so
0: until the late 1800s, there was a region in Afghanistan that was not did not fall with one of the within one, uh, the various different denominations of islam yes wow and, that's fascinating yeah. well, how many well, people are we talking about uh, several hundred thousand a couple of million no
1: no no on the on the order of uh, scores if not, probably just a couple hundred thousand
0: okay I, okay I, got I, it the,
1: again one of the things of a, a colonial state is it takes the demographic records and we don't have that
0: for okay. that reason Yeah, yeah yeah
1: this, this is the High Hindu Kush. Um, some of the highest mountain passes in the Hindu Kush. And so quite. So the point for Abdurrahman is that there's a lot of violence in making these uh, sort of borders look like the thing called Afghanistan, and that involved exiles.
0: My okay.
1: grandfather, uh, my great grandfather, rather, was exiled. Uh, to sort of Samarkand and the Russian side of things, Tarzi exiled that family to the Ottoman Empire. And when Abdurrahman died, his son Habibullah invited a lot of these people back. Okay, Did and they
0: bring their European-style values to Afghanistan.
1: Until you're so perspective, because that's the story that Mahmud oh, wow. returns with a very. Ottomanized view of Islam and modernity and Europe. And Which back
0: then, unlike uh, President Erdogan now, was more secular, was leaning secular heavily, right? The right? Ottomans back then, yeah.
1: Well, and this is a really complex time for the world of Islam, where it sort of the existence of, of Muslims and Muslim polities was in great jeopardy with the expansion of these European yeah. Um, so uh, that whole question of um, Islamic reform is gestating in this period and Mahmoud Tarzi and his, he brings his wife and two daughters and he becomes a very prominent confidant of Habibullah who invited him back. We have the development of the first um, Afghan newspapers in this period a lot of um, sort of early journalism and early nationalism um, are taking shape and modernization. Questions of, of gender are very much at the center of these. And not just from outsiders, Muslim women themselves were navigating these sort of um, questions of modernity and secularism.
0: Were Muslim women forced to take off their uh, hijabs, their head covers? Mm-hmm. Uh, by the king in the 1920s, or was there also a force of willing modernization? I, I don't want to use that word modernization. That's that's a terrible word, but sort of uh, no. willing westernization, if you will.
1: Well, I mean, the thing to remember here is that these um, uh, surges of modernity, such as devailing, mm-hmm. are very limited to elite classes, particularly in Kabul. So the impact and it wasn't really it's it's sort of unclear that she was photographed without a veil when she and her husband toured Europe.
0: By she, you mean the queen then in the 1920s
1: the, in, in Afghanistan, the moment where she was symbolically deveiled was not a full deveiling because there was a sheen. It was just a kind of modern sheen uh, over her face common in the Ottoman Empire at that time. Uh-huh. Um, not a f- so it wasn't like in Iran where there was a full um, literally. Oh, okay? I see. I see. You have to remember, there's lots of different ways Muslim women navigate clothing. And one chadur or hijab is not another. There are different styles that are in play here. And it's a very limited um, sort of phenomena. But we must remember that veiling, in a general sense, was limited to cities in the countryside. It's not the case that most women are typically um, veiled. And this has to do with who you know and strangers um, or, or, or kin or familiar people. Wait, are. I
0: didn't follow that last part. In modern Afghanistan, let's say you go out to the villages, women are not veiled as they are in the cities.
1: If you were an outsider and you rolled in on your helicopter or your little Humvee, yeah, the woman would veil. But if you saw her in her own terms, she would most likely be non-veiled, working in the... It's very difficult to wear a chadur and practice agriculture.
0: Oh, I see. And, You're saying that. So amongst their kin and, and their clan, uh, where everyday life goes on in the rural communities... veiling in Afghanistan is a whole a whole different phenomenon than it is, let's say, in central Kabul. Yeah, these are very complex
1: issues because it's not just veiling, it's how you veil and from who and for how long. So even inside the idea of separation of the sexes and seclusion, inside an Afghan home, you know, you may have women who are unveiled, but not in the men's part of the home, so where and who and what the, the social context is is really critical.
0: Was there a was there a time in Afghanistan in which women openly walked in the streets without veiling, without covering their hair? I'm talking about Kandahar and Kabul, the way they did in Tehran and let's say Amman and Jordan and Lebanon.
1: You can find many pictures online from the 50s and 60s of so-called Afghan schoolgirls walking around Kabul University in mini dresses, if you want to look for just a minute on the web.
0: Like in mini skirt? Oh, wow. Yeah. And sort of
1: celebrating what is then the idea of Americanized modernity. The Americans uh-huh. were heavily involved in Afghanistan in the 1950s and 60s. And the cultural projections of America from, you know, Pan Am Airlines, Down to Vogue magazine, had a kind of presence in Afghanistan, and uh, the journalists, the American journalists, were very keen, as journalists are today. Afghan women are quite a a fascinating photo.
0: Was that complete devailing and miniskirts? I'm just going to go on a leap of faith here. That was probably limited to big cities, right?
1: Yes, in my view, very limited. And the. I see walking down the street for an American photographer without it would go home and likely behave somewhat differently. And so I see. It, it's really important to recognize that um, there are sort of um, hierarchies in all cultures between genders. We have issues in the American context with access of women glass ceiling ideas and business and other uh, many other areas of culture and
0: go ahead please go ahead Uh, no i'm just saying that's not comparable to the plight of women in afghanistan but i see what you're saying even within each country there are different levels and and
1: yeah of challenges uh, yeah and the, the key here is not to simplify the idea of afghan women to some singular monolith while you're veiled or unveiled
0: that's I mean, a great point that's yeah. a great it's point
1: really not kind of the issue
0: i appreciate you making that point uh, professor hanibi uh why don't we take a short break uh and come back and then talk about afghanistan's last king all the way uh, to the 9 11 terrorist attacks on america we hope you are enjoying this podcast And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. And it's easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you. Professor Hanifi, between the removal of Afghanistan's last king in 1973 to the 9-11 attacks in 2001, Afghanistan went through so much change. Uh, I'm reluctant to ask any particular question because I have so many questions to ask. So I think it's better if you would please briefly share the history of this period with us. How do we, how do we go? How do we get to Osama bin Laden and the Taliban from an Afghan king that was modernizing the country? you just made some allusion- suggestions about it, the uh, universities, and even had uh, good diplomatic relations with the world. We had coup d'etats and constitutions and the Russians and the Americans. Sure. Um,
1: let's step back to the couple of decades before 1973. Sure okay and in that period let's call it the cold war decades in afghanistan okay afghanistan was exposed to multiple major international development projects and initiatives the americans were very much involved in the south in the helmand valley developing dams and extended agricultural settlements in that region of the country the soviets were active in similar ways in the
0: north so this is 19 late 1950s and 60s now we're talking East, about yeah,
1: coming up to the 70s and okay. many other actors germans and czechoslovakians and japanese and it was a very open um uh, arena of geopolitical projections and and to some extent afghanistan is um benefiting from playing these powers, particularly the Americans and Soviets, off one another. Okay, in okay. the sense that Afghanistan was, some say, the largest per capita recipient of development aid in the world during these decades.
0: My goodness. Okay.
1: Yep. It's it's an extremely important predicate to 1973 um, in terms of multiple international interests, where it is the case that American um, uh uh cultural and political uh expressions and alternatives we're we're kind of carrying the day but not exclusively and the sort of local political context here is the king's cousin Mohammed Daoud who um uh is the person who replaced Mohammed Zahir Shah in 1973
0: and that period between
1: 1973...
0: Wait, he'd replaced him as another monarch or a president or a prime minister of some sort? Um, well,
1: this it, the, the monarchy was... Uh, I, I'm not sure if it was technically. I believe it was technically eliminated, but it became um, a, more of a democratic republic. I see. Daoud, um was... Again, now still very much exposed to Soviet and American um, interests and what, what happens here ultimately is that there are a number of domestic political pressures as well as international pressures that lead Daoud to be overthrown in 1978 in April. 1978, and the Soviets invade then in December 1979. In 1978, it was indigenous, socialists, a kind of socialist regime, friendly both to China and the Soviet Union that came into power um, in 19. at 78. And the um, personalities involved there come and go rather quickly. Um, and what the this again still involves now two major empires. Let's just leave it the United States and the Soviet Union, both with kind of um, overt political and military goals around the world, including Afghanistan against one another, but also a lot of covert operations. And what happens when the socialists, so to speak, dubbed Afghan communists come to the fore, the American covert operations machine kicked into motion. And it's in July, 1979, that... Um, I, President Carter kind of authorized what becomes the largest covert operation um, in terms of expenditure in United States history. And this is the American support of the Afghan Mujahideen. The Afghan Mujahideen. Which are not
0: the Taliban. That the, the Mujahideen actually fight the Taliban later on, right? I just want to get the semantics correctly, right?
1: Oh, well, you're again, so important, uh, so right to bring up the relationship, but they're um, let's say for now that the Taliban grow out of the mujahideen before becoming opposed to the mujahideen
0: whoa interesting and, and this is this all being funneled through Pakistan
1: this is that this is that side of the story now because the American covert um, funding of the Afghan mujahideen was routed through Pakistan and its intelligence services, the Inter-Services Intelligence Agency, ISI. And so what we have throughout the 80s is an intense collaboration as well as tension between the CIA and the ISI over um, the commanders, the Afghan commanders in the field who become proxies in a sense for uh, both interests, and so there is a triangulated, very complex set of relationships between the CIA, the ISI, and the Afghan Mujahideen that um, uh, give rise to a group of seven Afghan Mujahideen parties that are um, collaborate, but also antagonistic towards one another in certain circumstances. And this is all happening in Peshawar, Pakistan, uh, just to the Eastern edge of the High Pass. Um, uh, and so what that period of the 1980s and subsequently the 90s, which is a little differently structured because of the Soviet Union's exit, involves a lot of global Islamic activism, including Arabs, including Osama bin Laden, and including the famous Palestinian Jordanian journalist Abdullah Azam. And there's a there's a, a sort of globalization. Of this jihad that brings in Indonesians, Chechnyans,
0: Muslims from Afghanistan frugal. to fight the Soviets,
1: well routed through Pakistan. Peshawar is the is the nest of all this. Peshawar was just crawling with um, all. It, it was a truly global city um, with all kinds of operators, uh, b- both. Public and sort of the humanitarian agencies that were involved, the Red Cross and um, that kind of thing, Danish and Swedish Relief Committees, very, very prominent in Peshawar, working on Afghan refugees, but really, um, yeah. So that's the 80s and 90s, really, that get us up to, uh, well, um, if we want to bring the Taliban into play here now, um, we can...
0: Yeah, I want to know how the Taliban, at some point, I guess, all Afghans uh, are able to, um, to, to put up sufficient resistance to the um, Soviets that they're convinced, the Soviets are convinced to leave. And out of all of this crucible, the Taliban somehow rise.
1: Right. right. What
0: happens? How does that happen?
1: Well, because of the um, context of the Mujahideen era that involved a lot of uh, military and uh, sort of human uh, excesses, that is rape and depopulation, village depopulation. And there was a lot of problems with the Mujahideen um, in terms of local Afghan un- understandings of corrupt and violent so-called warlords, the warlord culture that is such a um, you know, a problematic phrase, but kind of applies to the lawlessness of the Mujahideen era, out of which the Taliban sort of emerged to recapture the islam a, 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 a more uh, sort of uh, properly Islamic um, ethos of conduct involving war, involving food distribution, involving justice. And the Talibs offer a really radical um, departure in terms of statecraft because of the mobility. The, the Taliban um, kind of have mobile courts that dispense justice. Of course, sometimes like a
0: like a circuit, like a circuit court. Yeah.
1: Well, they're, they're, the the decision makers move around. Yeah. Like a state's decision makers are based in you know a singular place like a a capital or the Oregon. In Kabul, so the Talibs have a different uh, approach to governance that's, um, uh, you know, structurally involves mobility in ways that nation states um, don't like. They're not comfortable with
0: Professor it. And if I want to make sure that I understand the point that I, I don't think you explicitly made it, but you were you you were teaching the audience uh, about. The mujahideen and their excesses militarily and and just the human atrocities that they inflicted did did the taliban in the 90s provide a relatively more stable country for some time to the afghan people am i is, is this a right derivation of what you just shared with me well,
1: I I think so. It's fair. I think the thing I'd like to, I guess, add as a postscript to my previous comments is that we have individuals who come and go from Mujahideen parties to the Taliban and back, just like we have sort of ex-warlords in the government today. And people, the political culture of Afghanistan, it should be seen as a chameleon, that people change their colors pretty quickly, as it were. Okay, that's mm-hmm. the first, that's the first point. The second point is the 1990s, where Kabul between 1992 and 1996 was turned into a, a, a literal graveyard. It became kind of such a uh destructed place. Uh,
0: Did the Mujahideen
1: inflict those atrocities yeah, upon one another and upon the citizens of Kabul who were really bombed and and there, there is a there's a serious problem with gendered violence here, um, in that era. It, it was an extremely brutal time, and the Talibs oh. are emerging, you know, out of that. The Talibs come to power in 1996 on the historical heels of those, of that just 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 brutal destruction and implosion of civil society and culture,
0: and Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda were already present in afghanistan i'm just basing this on what you shared with me along with many other groups such as indonesians chechens and whatever uh, islamic affiliated uh, fighters that had gathered in afghanistan is that correct
1: that's absolutely correct. I see. At the same time, we must remember what the demise of the Soviet Union did to Muslims and the political spaces in Central Asia. We must remember the Iranian revolution, which recalibrates global political Islam beginning in 1979.
0: And, and, and that happened to be very in, in, in close to the time that the Soviets attacked in 1979.
1: Absolutely. It's it's impossible to understand events in Afghanistan without understanding events in Iran in South Asia, where Kashmir was a major, still volatile.
0: In a way, Iran's revolution may have been an impetus for uh, many Muslims, including uh, those that were in Afghanistan, that, hey, you too could have your own Islamic Republic. Uh,
1: Yes, that was a really... uh, uh, It wasn't just aspirational. The idea was real. Yeah. It had a significant impact on on the surrounding regions and global Islamdom.
0: Uh, Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Hanifi as we get into the perspective. (music) Professor Hanifi. According to U.S. intelligence estimates, Kabul may fall to the Taliban within six months. Uh, in a lengthy and at times passionate, yeah, I can call it that, passionate news conference last week, President Biden categorically denied this possibility. And to support his position, he compared the military strengths of the Taliban with the relatively much, much greater strength of the Afghan army. Despite what what our president says, there are many reports of Afghan soldiers not fighting. Uh, Some say they're giving up. Perhaps they're regrouping. I, I don't know. What I do know is that many Americans, particularly Afghanistan veterans, are disappointed that our military training of Afghan soldiers is not showing results. Not yet anyway, okay? So help me with this, please. What's the disconnect here? I don't think courage is an issue. Afghans have fought for years. They've fought empires and won. Is there a sense of inevitability? Is there a lack of resolve or lack of leadership that, you know, makes it less likely that the Afghan army may fight? Well, this I have to admit this one is a complex question it was I had a hard time even asking it articulating it
1: yeah well I, I appreciate it and um again let me start uh, always I'm sorry uh, perhaps too simply and we are reading Afghanistan once again through Kabul and it's all about Kabul to say of course Kabul, you're right
0: Kabul, that's Kabul, such a great point you're right
1: it's it's kind of secondary to Afghanistan, in my view. Afghanistan is a preponderantly rural place that Kabul has no relationship to. And so that Kabul falls, and this is um, one question. The Afghan army, I guess, is is another. Um, and like all armies historically, including the United States Army, you know, questions of logistics and provisioning the army with proper weaponry that is ammunition and proper pay and proper support are contentious issues. And the Afghan army, um, is at the, at the lower end of success in that regard. That is in terms of regular payment and, you know, kind of properly supplied and integrated. Um, the, uh, you know, history of us training. Um, I, I,
0: So I just want to confirm this point. So you're saying that the Afghan army, the current army, it's not properly uh, paid and integrated? No, not in all cases, no. Interesting. Okay.
1: Absolutely not. No, no. And and so training also, I mean, um, there's been, I would say, hundreds of thousands of Afghans trained in various kinds of things, from civil society issues to law to military issues. And you know, these involve a lot of short courses in Washington and Europe. And, you know, my question really is, if we talk about education and training, summer school is different than the academic year. You can take a course in the summer and be trained in something, but that's not <laughs> a degree.
0: Of course. And, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's also control of the technology. The Afghan soldiers were being trained with particular armaments, were never allowed to take those armaments home or even have bullets in them. And so when we saw the the training of the Afghan Air Force involves, again, um, a lot of still very non-Afghan elements um, in the Air Force in particular. Interesting. You know, I'm sure there are some fantastically trained Afghanistan's special operations troops with just the greatest skill set in the world, and they're few in number, and I don't think integrated to the rest of the military in the same way. In fact, their special training is probably viewed as um, a distinguishing feature in the Afghan army, that this group over here has something we don't, and that's not the way it should be because we should have had that opportunity. and
0: Maybe next- even separates them. and, and, and yeah. I see yeah.
1: And again, it's really air power. And the United States, be very clear, even Biden said, there's a new phrase now, over the horizon capability, which means drone war. The Americans are intent fully upon maintaining a drone presence that's still the most terrifying and alienating aspect of the global war on terror. For people all around the world, in Yemen, Somalia, Pakistan, and Afghanistan is the is the nest of all sorts of trials for the all the new technologies that we take for granted now drones in particular were sort of that uh, the afghan battlefield has been a training ground for all kinds of new things
0: oh you mean for 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 us americans for our uh, military complex uh, to try out our new weapons that's what you're saying
1: and I think it will continue to be that. I think I it will continue to be a zone where new over-the-horizon technologies, perhaps involving the Space Force, will be tried and executed. Remember, oh remember the mother of all bombs dropped in April 2017. This sort of uh, very cutting-edge technology. Um, and it's absurd to say that the largest explosion since Hiroshima only resulted in, I think they claimed 12 perfect uh, 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 terrorist people killed. And, uh, there's well, a lot when of. When did that
0: take place? 2017? Where? In
1: Afghanistan? April, April 2017. Uh, in uh, Afghanistan?
0: Yeah,
1: just in Jalalabad, essentially. So just massive destruction to the environment. And that's what I'd like to leave the audience with, if I may, please. The please question. do of war in the environment. In the United States in, uh, and around military bases, there's a lot of movements for the environmental kind of toxicity of the waters in places like Minnesota and elsewhere. And so I'm interested in the role of military toxins and particularly radiation on the Afghan environment. The use of depleted uranium in the munitions that have been Constantly deployed in Afghanistan since the Battle of Tora Bora to look for bin Laden unsuccessfully, to the mother of all bombs, to this very moment when Afghanistan is being bombed mercilessly with weapons of of new sorts, new, new cutting edge weapons that involve depleted uranium. And that depleted uranium is threatening the groundwater supply of Afghanistan that will make that place uninhabitable. I'm concerned about the environmental impact of global war on the territory and for the people of Afghanistan that need retributive justice, just like indigenous Americans do here and and their kind of exposure to military toxins in Arizona, uh, in the southwest here, in New Mexico, excuse me.
0: Fascinating. I would have never, you know, in all the conversations and uh, discussions that pundits have on TV and uh, in, in many various publications, you never hear anyone talk about the uh, cost to Afghanistan's environment. That That's was true. fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, Professor Hanifi, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome to the Peel.news. Anytime, and to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research. And we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the peel.news. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at the thepl.news. I love to hear from you, I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with Appeal.News.